Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have the pleasure of talking today with a friend and an alum of Beeson Divinity School, Dr. Chad Wraith. Chad is the Executive Vice President of Mission and Ethics at Mercy Health in Northwest Arkansas. He brings to this job a rich background in teaching, in theology. He has an MDiv from Beeson Divinity School. He has a THM from Regent College, where he worked with Professor Hans Borsma, and a PhD from Ava Maria University in Florida, where he worked with uh, Matt Levering. So, uh, Chad, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're honored to have you back. Now, I want to begin by just um, asking you to tell a little bit about your coming to Christ, your call to the mm. ministry, and why you chose Beeson, of all places, <laughs> to do theological work. Well, I was about two years before completing my industrial and systems engineering degree at Georgia Tech, and it was at that time that I actually came to Christ. I was not raised in the church or with any uh, Christian affiliation in my background. And I finished engineering at Tech, but by the time I finished, um, my newfound faith made such an impact on me. It kind of changed my philosophy of life, my goals, my hopes. I mean, it really impacted me deeply over a course of a couple of years that I decided I wanted to do something that touched people more directly. Um, at the time, I struggled whether to choose between ministry or medicine. Uh, I was actually looking at Emory uh, Medical School there in Atlanta because huh? I was there. And um, thanks to some counseling, which I always find very helpful when making these kind of decisions, never make them in your own head, but talk with others that know you. Um, I decided that my faith was so new that I really wanted to learn more about it and I wanted to explore it more deeply. And that led me on a journey of where to go to seminary. And after talking, uh, with some people that were influential in my life. And at the time, I was um, a youth intern at First Baptist Atlanta. So Charles Stanley, mm -hmm. who you, I, I know know, um, encouraged me not to go to a denominational seminary. Mm. And so that is uh, any de particular denominational seminary. Um, I, I took his advice, and so I was looking really for an interdenominational seminary. I had some folks that had gone to Beeson, and... Uh, loved it, and so I made my way to Birmingham after uh, checking it out. You know, I remember you very well as a student at Beeson. Mm -hmm. I remember you were very active in the student body. I don't know if you were the president, but you had some yeah. role, and mm -hmm. you were very active in ministry in Birmingham. I was. I was very concerned about what was going on in the city and with young people, and, yep. and your so I, when I think about you, I, if you would ask me to pick out somebody in the Beeson student body that was going to become a world-class, cutting-edge scholar of Thomas Aquinas and John <laughs> Calvin, you would not have been that guy. And I would have never thought I would be that guy. That journey um, really happened because while at Beeson, I tasted something of the Christian faith and of this rich heritage and this rich theology that when I was done, quite frankly, I just needed more. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I wanted to explore more. And that's what led me to a THM. I really wasn't sure if I wanted to go into academia. That was always a question mark for me. And in fact, preparing for this podcast, I looked at an old journal of mine from Beeson days. And I had in there 
do I get a PhD or do I go into the ministry? I'm not sure. So I thought a THM was a nice middle ground. It's a mm. two-year research degree. Um, and that led me to Regent College to be with Hans Borsman. And after those two years, through, again, some counseling and advice of those around me, the pastor up there at the time that I was at the church, and as well as Hans and some others, they really felt I had a calling for teaching and the life of the mind and exploring mm -hmm. academically. And that's what led me to my PhD and mm -hmm. from there on. I do remember having a conversation with you when you were at that point of decision about PhD work. Mm. And you chose to go to a Catholic school, a very fine Catholic school, Ava Maria University, uh, which is where you really began to bore into Thomas Aquinas and 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 brought him into conversation mm -hmm. with John Calvin. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about that project, but first of all, what kind of led you in that direction? Well, uh, when I was completing my THM at Regent, uh, by that point, having studied under you, Dr. George, and now under uh, Dr. Borsma, both of you very involved in ecumenical conversations, I sort of saw the handwriting on the wall for my own life. And um, at the time, I was reading a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre, and I was reading his text, After Virtue. And what dawned on me was that if I'm going to be effective in this ecumenical conversation in the future, I felt like for myself in conversation with my wife, that it wasn't enough for me just to read about Catholic theology or to read about Catholicism or to hear about it from afar. But I felt the only way I was really going to understand it is if I embedded myself within it mm -hmm. and saw it from the inside out. Uh, Alistair McIntyre has an analogy of a chess game where you can tell someone about chess and you can explain to them everything about chess, but until they actually play the game, mm -hmm. they really don't understand the inner logic of what's going on in chess. So my wife and I moved uh, down to Naples, Florida, and um, <laughs> little did I know that I was the first uh, Protestant they had ever had ah. in the PhD program, and only Protestant they've ever had um, in the PhD program. So you ruined it for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I became the poster boy of everything Protestant, though. It doesn't matter if the question was Calvin, Bonhoeffer, Bart. Uh, you know, if they were Protestant, I needed to know a response. I had to have a yeah. response to it. But uh, it was a generous uh, community. W one thing that was interesting is that they were, they were quite secure in their own Catholicism. But that security actually uh, bred an openness mm. to dialogue and, mm. and to hear and to explore. And so we felt very received. And over long conversations over dinner, late at mm. night, I learned a lot about the inner workings of Catholicism from the Catholic frame of mind. And that's helped me kind of translate uh, between Protestant and Catholic, where we use, you know, sometimes uh, different terminology to talk about the same thing. One example I use is, if I were to walk into uh, a group of, of Protestant pastors and talk about what we do at Mercy Health, which is a Catholic health organization, I say every morning before we go out and do our business, we pray the Our Father together. No one would have a clue what I'm talking about because <laughs> they're like, what's an Our Father? Yeah. But all that is is the Lord's Prayer. That's what we use in Protestant sure. language. We call it the Lord's Prayer. But it's the little things like that that's yeah. an example of a translation opportunity, I think, between the two. Great. Now, I want to ask you about your dissertation, which became a book mm -hmm. published by Oxford University Press called Aquinas and Calvin on Romans, mm. God's Justification and Our Participation. Now, there are five 
really big words. <laughs> I'm not including gods in there either. If you go Aquinas, Calvin, Romans, justification, and participation. Yes. There's a lot of weight in each of those words. So what was the genesis of that project, and what were you really trying to do? Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of—it felt weighty doing the project. I mean, here I am dealing with giants of the faith, Thomas Aquinas, John Calvin— with a giant text of the Bible, which is the book of Romans, and giant theological topics like justification <laughs> and participation. So I'm just a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. But I, I was so hungry to really get into what truly unites and divides us as Protestants and Catholics um, that I wasn't satisfied with, with surface-level explanations. Um, and just for me, I needed to go deep. I just needed to really explore thickly uh, mm -hmm. the conversation historically, too, because mm -hmm. uh, I, I came to appreciate, especially being a Beeson, that, that, that we have a history here that we're working with them. Well, John Calvin was a natural fit for me. I learned a lot about Calvin at Beeson, as well as under Dr. Borsma, himself reformed, um, at, at Regent. Um, new to me was Thomas Aquinas, but um, Ave Maria is very deeply rooted in Aquinas, and I came across him very deeply while being at Ave Maria. And so this seemed like natural conversation partners because people sometimes think Thomas Aquinas is the Catholic guy and John Calvin is the Protestant guy. Now the latter is a little more true given the historical kind of dimensions of the Reformation. But what I wanted to explore is just how similar or different is the thought processes of someone like a Thomas Aquinas and a John Calvin on a very hot book of the Bible ecumenically speaking, mm. which is the book of Romans. So I kind of threw it all together. And the two other words that came out, justification and participation, are the two concepts that I found to be key points of similarity and tension between the two and how they went about interpreting Romans. Say how Thomas and Calvin are similar and different on justification. Well, one of the more immediate differences that you know is comes up very frequently in ecumenical dialogue is um, for Thomas Aquinas, justifi justification has to do with being transformed into a just person. Uh, justification and sanctification are, are not distinct terms and distinct categories quite like they are for So a concept like, of infused grace, right, something like that? Well, the notion of infused grace would still be, I think, this is something I argue in the text, is Calvin is actually very participatory. Yeah. Very deeply, God's life in us and through us. Union and with Christ. Union with Christ is very yeah. deep. But when it comes to how we conceive of what makes us stand right before God, what gives us peace with God, the fundamental reality for Calvin is going to be a, a covering or a clothing of Christ's righteousness, which doesn't decrease or increase depending on how holy you are, but it's yours by faith, and you, you have it fully, you're 100% justified by having Christ's own perfect justness. Aquinas believed that we, through grace, participate also in Christ's justness, but by being transformed into that justness through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So for Aquinas, you can become more justified or less justified, mm -hmm. uh, which is a totally foreign concept in, yeah. in the Protestant way of thinking. So if we said sanctified, that Saint works a little better for Protestants, right? Exactly. And that was a, a major difference I discovered between Calvin and Aquinas when they interpreted Romans. 
Oftentimes, Calvin would employ a distinction between justification and sanctification to interpret Paul that just wasn't there for Aquinas. Mm -hmm. um, he, there, there is no distinct places such as like Romans 3. This is not justification, whereas Romans 6 is talking about sanctification. That's Calvin. Calvin will think Romans 1 through 3 is really about justification, then like 6 through 8, that's going to be about sanctification. Aquinas interprets the whole thing as a more continuous spectrum of justification mm. and its various components. And that's going to lead to just diverse interpretations and applications and the way in which we conceive of what it means to participate in God's salvation. Let me throw another big word at you that's sure. also from the book of Romans, uh, predestination, mm. uh, 9 to 11. And it, there, maybe my own sense is you, you find greater uh, continuity between Aquinas and Calvin because they were both such astute students of St. Augustine. That's correct. Yes. You agree with that? I do agree with that. Um, sometimes I find this especially within um, Catholic circles, quite frankly, when I hear Calvin and Aquinas talked about when it comes to predestination. They, they tend to think of Calvin advocating a more active role when it comes to God's reprobation than is found in Aquinas, um, that they think Aquinas has a much more robust place for permission mm -hmm. that Calvin uh, rejects, actually, very explicitly the doctrine of permission. However, what I've discovered, again, this is one of those those issues, you, you have to appreciate that Aquinas and Calvin live 300 years apart. And in that 300-year time period, you get a lot of development within Scotus's thought, yep. Occam, Yale's thought, Calvin is not reacting to and working within a Thomistic framework, right. primarily for his polemics. So when he rejects permissive will, he's not rejecting a definition of it that Thomas Aquinas holds to. Mm. He rejects a definition that the nominalist held to yeah. when it comes to permission. Right. So it gets really complicated, and in fact, I found that when it comes to providence, the notion of God's providence, Aquinas is very clear, those whom God predestined will make it to heaven, just yeah. like Calvin. Very yeah. little difference there. Yeah. Now, this work, this deep, textured, thick work, oh. as you call it, on uh, Aquinas and Calvin and Romans and justification, uh, have led you uh, to be very interested in ecumenism. And where, where you were studying, as you were saying, Ave Marie, you studied at a Catholic school. Um, and you and another Beeson alum, <laughs> David Nelson, mm -hmm. uh, are the authors of a book, Ecumenism, A Guide for the Perplexed. Mm. Maybe you can say a little bit about that book and then the wider question of ecumenism and why is that something a Protestant evangelical should be interested mm. in? Mm. Well, the book itself um, came out of a mutual love for the church that Dave and I have, both having been formed deeply in our appreciation both of ecumenism and the church through Beeson and our mm -hmm. time there. We should say Dave is a Lutheran yes, theologian. He is, uh, working right now for Baker Academic. So, you know, that we met, uh, became really good friends at Beeson, so that's almost 16 years ago now. We've remained kind of theological friends the whole time in our conversation and dialogue with one another. And in 2011, uh, we decided uh, that there needed to be a text written that updated the conversation around ecumenism. So ecumenism, as you well know, 
is an uh, ever-changing reality. At least you hope so. If it's being effective, then we're not the same as we were 10 years ago. Hopefully things are different. So there is, at the time of writing this, and still not a good introductory text to the ecumenical dialogue, the modern ecumenical dialogue, especially one that updates it to the present time and one that explicitly includes the contributions of evangelical ecumenism. Mm -hmm. I found through the researching this text, and Dave would agree with this as well, that the story of modern ecumenism is simply unintelligible without the evangelical contribution. Mm -hmm. And that comes out in the book. So we hope this becomes a textbook that can be used in classrooms, that can be an introductory text for anyone that is interested, because it gives a good introductory overview of the ecumenical movement historically and the key issues that the ecumenical movement faces in, in, in terms of today and in terms of going forward. Who's the publisher? Uh, Continuum Press. So it's part of a guide for the perplexed series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Ecumenism, a guide for the perplexed by David Nelson and Chad Wraith That's from right. Continuum. So check it out. I think you'll find it very helpful and very interesting. Now, I want to shift a little bit to mm -hmm. a shift in your life, because mm -hmm. uh, for a number of years, you have been in academia, as you said. Uh, you were a professor of religion and philosophy at John Brown University in Siloam Springs, Arkansas, where you and I were last together, mm -hmm. I think, at a conference that mm -hmm. you uh, were organizing, I was speaking at, uh, looking at Catholic, Orthodox, and Evangelical perspectives on the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. So you were thick into the academic world, but you've gone through a shift in recent months. Uh, tell us a little bit now. You're the executive vice president of Mission and Ethics at Mercy Health in Northwest Arkansas. What is that? <laughs> well, Mercy Health is a Christian Catholic Sisters of Mercy. That's kind of the three buckets that they describe themselves. A Catholic health care organization. And Mercy takes their Christian commitments so deeply that they have a vice president position dedicated to mission and ethics. Mm. If I were to you know, talk about the position at 20,000 feet, I would basically say that I'm there, as well as other vice presidents of mission and other um, parts of Mercy, are present at the executive level to ensure our decisions strategically that are being made as a healthcare institution are consistent with who we are as a Christian healthcare institution. Um, kind of on the ground level, uh, there are many dynamics to healthcare as we all know in America today. Many struggles, many tensions that we face. And so we want to ensure that whatever we do going forward, we remain true to who we are as a as a Christian healthcare organization. There's things we do because of that, and there's things we don't do because of that. Mm -hmm. But we want to ensure that we actually, and this is the, the mission of mercy, to bring to life the healing ministry of Jesus through compassionate care and exceptional service. And I'm there to just be a part of the conversation to ensure that happens. So if you can answer this question, what would an organization like the United States Conference of Catholic mm -hmm. Bishops how would they inform the work of uh, Mercy Health in making decisions about bioethics and whatever <laughs> it is that you know, you're know you facing, yes. the, fr the front lines today? Yes, well, um, we have what's known as the Ethical and Religious Directives of the uh, United States Catholic Conference of Bishops. Right now we're in the fifth edition, so it's an ongoing, evolving, just like healthcare it is itself, but it provides what you may think of as the parameters 
of what we do as a healthcare organization and what the directives are trying to get at, what the do's and the don'ts that are in the directives are trying to get at is we want to ensure that the kind of healthcare we provide is bringing to life the healing ministry of Jesus and just isn't performing procedures and doing medicine. Um, there are certain things that if we did them, and uh, to give you an example in the, in the directives, um, abortion, the idea is that if we performed this, it would be hard to recognize it as the healing ministry of Jesus. Mm. And so uh, that's one of the, the things we don't do as part of Mercy. Um, we also, in our community, do about five to six million dollars of charity care. Uh, this is to the poor, the underinsured, and the uninsured. We do do this because it is consistent with what we think of with the healing ministry of Jesus. And so that's some of the ways in which we're informed by these directives and by the Catholic Conference of Bishops. So it seems to me that this new position that you've just recently taken, uh, although it's, it's not something you might have predicted for yourself no. five or six years ago, <laughs> nonetheless builds on how God has shaped your life in these various uh, studies you've done and teaching you've done so that you can actually put into practice the theology you've been teaching and writing over the years. Very much so. Um, whether it is uh, doing the translation between Catholicism and Protestantism, because Mercy is an official ministry of the Catholic Church as a health care organization, but it is so in a largely Protestant part of the country, mm -hmm. um, and I get to be a part of that translation between the two, um, because as we know, especially that's uh, come out with our uh, conversation here with evangelicals and Catholics together. When it comes to certain healthcare issues, Protestants and Catholics really should get on board with one another yeah. and be united in, in, in our common cause of bringing to life the healing ministry of Jesus. Um, it also allows me at a very real level with people dying every day in the hospital or being healed in a certain way in the hospital or facing very, very difficult decisions in life this theological training and this background in, in Catholic moral theology that I got at Ave Maria um, enables uh, me to kind of approach these with the kind of distinctions and categories and, and, and kind of framework that you need when you're trying to engage complex life decisions, which is what we deal with on a daily basis in a hospital and in our clinics. Well, I wish you every blessing as well, you undertake you. this new work. We're very proud of you at Beeson. <laughs> thank you. And we hope we'll hear very more. Very proud to be a Beeson alumni. So Thank you so much. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Chad Wraith. And we thank you for this conversation, Chad. Thank you, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.